Hello. Hi, Brandon. Yeah, good. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm a little bit tired, actually. <laughs> Should be all right. Dan Erickson made one of my favorite albums when he was my age, while living in the early 90s indie rock scene of Perth, Australia. Where are you now and what do you do? Uh, I'm in Melbourne. I work a pretty boring job and I've got three kids. <laughs> tried to play music here and there, um, but haven't really got back around to it, but want to. So I just need to do something again before I get too old. Oh, I'm sorry. You haven't heard of Perth's thriving early 90s indie rock scene? And that's forgivable, since the only accessible piece of information from that time is the album that Dan made, Lowercase. He recorded it with friends under the name Blue Tile Lounge. Released in 95, Lowercase is now championed as one of the classics of the non-genre known as slowcore. Do you know what slowcore is? Maybe there's time for a history lesson. In any case, the place and context from which Lowercase, Blue Tile Lounge, and Dan Erickson emerged, that's all gone now. Yeah, and there's not much, no, no reviews, because they were all, you know, street press at the time and stuff. And all the zines were hand-printed, so there's no record of them. Yeah, so it's a funny, sort of a lost era. <laughs> and while this in itself is not unique, Perth in the 90s was, as is the fact that the indie rock bands that used to play out every week were swallowed up just before the internet would make the concept of ever losing music completely unthinkable. My name is Brendan Maddox, and you're listening to Stories About Music, a new podcast on the subjects of music, journalism, and memoir, and how the line between those three things is often not as clear as I'd hoped. This is Story About Music number two, the tragic fate of all hidden scenes. About once a year, I go through a blue period. Some would call it seasonal depression, but technically, it can strike at any point. The first time I can clearly remember it happening was five years ago, during the autumn of my second year in college. For four months, I wore almost exclusively the color blue, from toe to head. Royal blue Converse high tops, skinny blue jeans, a robin's egg t-shirt, and an American apparel hoodie in blue. And while the complementary colors certainly made my eyes pop, the monochromatic effect was pronounced. Around that same time, I moved into an ensuite with a kid named Tyler. Whenever there's an album by a band, there's always like the one ballad, the one slow song, you know, the one mellow one. And that's the one I always loved. There's a lot about Tyler that I don't have time to explain, but I think the best way to define our friendship is that for ages 19 to 22, he was my musical guide. And um, when I found bands that had the whole album like that, I was like, yeah! <laughs> Even bands I knew, I was like, yeah, you know, you guys have a great sound, but like, make a ballad, like, do a slow song, it'll be so cool. <laughs> Tyler first learned about slowcore while waiting on his deferred admission to college. 
He moved to school in the middle of winter, and while he didn't have trouble making friends, he's always had a bit of a loner in him. I would walk around those like cold winter nights in Boston, and I would listen to um, these albums on repeat. You know, they, they would be the theme songs to uh, to my you know melancholy, to my even even I, I won't even just say that. I mean, I I listen to this music and it makes me happy, and I listen to this music when I am happy as well. So it was just the the theme song to my days. Later that year, Tyler passed on his love for slow music through a mix CD. I've still got lackluster 90s in my car, and on that collection of languid songs, he introduced me to the slowcore heroes. Red House Painters, Codeine, Low, Galaxy 500. Bands that Tyler had mostly heard about from the internet. Uh, that's, that's how most people find their music today. I mean, it's, it's, it's just such a vast pool of information right there. If you go to the semi-obscure music social network Last.fm and look up any of the artists that we talk about today, you will probably find Tyler in the comments section. The, the thing is, there's not that many slowcore bands that I like. I mean, there's not that many that I think are even uh, pegged with the, the genre title, slowcore. But um, the ones that I found and the ones that I had, you know, grown to love are, are truly gems that just never get old for me. They just don't get old. And for better or worse, what Tyler considered to be slowcore became what I considered to be slowcore. This is one of those things about myself that I don't realize until I'm composing these stories. A large piece of my identity, and Tyler's too, is wrapped up in how strangers chose to tag 30-second audio clips on an algorithm-based website in 2010. And yet, when Tyler talks about these records, it sounds so much more romantic. So much like fate that we should discover them at all um the other day or not the other day the other week actually uh i i i uh got high for like my my third time or something like that i don't like i really do drugs a lot but when i did i i I was listening to music all music i like and i came upon um the song realize by cody that is what uh, slowcore sounds like to me that they they pretty much are the ones i think that really nailed what it is and i think the listening experience really recontextualized what is so great about slowcore it really brings you into like slow motion and and you are kind of forced in between every hit you know which they come like they really take their time with it you are forced to kind of move in slow motion with the song and that kind of movement is the same movement i feel when i'm having a really stimulating conversation and i want to slow it all down and i want to say i'm like you know it it, it really calls to you to be there. Boston was so gray that autumn. Still reeling from a breakup, I had begun to take my own long walks through downtown, along the Charles River. The indie pop that I had held close for much of my teenage years sounded hopelessly manic, and slowcore guided my rapid, anxious heartbeat into a sedated 4-4 time. Of course, I always prefer the softer side of the genre. 
Codeine felt a little too brittle, like scraping the inside of my skull clean of all bad feelings. And they're like pre-slowcore anyway. The name wasn't coined until after Lowe released their first album, I Could Live in Hope. And so without further ado, I give you the man who accidentally invented a subgenre. Alright, um, my name is Alan Sparhawk, and I sing and play guitar in a band from Minnesota called Lowe. And you guys have been doing this now since 1993? Yeah, yeah, 93, there about. Yeah, we came along right kind of at the peak of <laughs> kind of like, okay, what is this? We need to label it. Yes, okay, now we know what this is. This is great, okay, we can all keep track of what we're doing. It's, you know, it was an exciting time and people wanted to know what was going to hit next because grunge this and post rock that and, you know, what was going to be the next catchphrase that would make someone millions of dollars, you know. No slowcore band has ever fully endorsed the label. But Lowe have had difficulty escaping it for one very good reason. So the irony of that is that we, we, we essentially brought it on ourselves. One of the first interviews that I ever did, I mentioned that a friend of mine who worked at a record store who was sort of a, you know, your, a typical kind of record fan, he was at our first show and he was joking with me the next day when I saw him, like, I got it, I got it, slowcore. <laughs> I'd mentioned that to this first interview, and I think what happens, like, then that got referenced before anybody else would interview us, or if they were just doing a little blurb about it, or they kind of mentioned that or something, and it kind of blew up from there, and then became this thing, like, oh, they don't like being called slowcore, but I, and I'm not sure even when that came along. There aren't many things to unite bands under the banner of slowcore, other than a general feeling of being down or nostalgic longing. Things that the blue period tends to be made out of. It's funny. I think it's, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's actually probably the perfect description of it. And there's sort of a weight to the word core, slow and core. There's something that evokes that there's a, a central vision or a central kind of anchor, like I said, to you know, what's going on, and, and in my idealistic vision of, of who, who I'm trying to be, and who I wish I was, I, I guess that probably is a little more complimentary than, than negative. Slowcore never blossomed in the way that similar subgenres like shoegaze or post-rock did. It's just a word that applies to a handful of records from the mid-90s, and anything that imitates that sound. Lowe is one of those lucky bands that were both impressive and stable enough to survive the last two decades. Most of the others, Codeine, Red House Painters, The American Analog Set, Galaxy 500, Bedhead, Duster, Idaho, and Spokane, have not. 
But this thing that they did is pretty well documented because they were American bands with American labels touring through America. During a conversation with Tyler about music journalism several years ago, I observed that since at least the late 80s, the majority of indie music journalism is based around the idea of regional scenes. In order to give context for music, you have to make connections between bands, and the easiest connection is typically geographic location. These bands that were all tied together by the word slowcore were also part of much broader movements in American underground music that rose from the Great Plains, the Pacific Northwest, Texas, and Boston. What's infinitely more curious, however, is how a group of Australians ended up getting thrown in with them. Now that the slowcore era is around 20 years old, the bands from that time are starting to pop up again. Codeine recently reissued their very small catalog, and Red House Painter's frontman Mark Kozalik released two critically acclaimed records and started an internet flame war within the course of the last year. But not many people are, or have been, talking about Blue Tile Lounge. Mm, of course, of course. That, that's definitely a deeper cut. You know, you, you, you don't first stumble upon Blue Tile Lounge, for sure. And then, at the end of last year, I turned 24. Depressed about the state of my career, and unsure if I was ever going to get my shit together, I found myself once again lingering over lowercase. Tyler, again. It's like this this beautifully nurturing and um, kind of like a friend that's like, you know, I get it, I get it, and it's okay. A good way to feel like I'm working is to open up a new case file on a different band and claim that I'm starting another story. Despite having a pile of untranscribed Phil Elverham audio, I decided that, if nothing else, I would get in touch with Blue Tile Lounge. And to my great surprise, I did. I just spent about 20 minutes trying to figure out where the name Blue Tile Lounge came from. Oh yeah. I uh, was not sort of still am, was a skateboarder. <laughs> I think it's old Californian skate slang, I think, for... Um, pool skating. It took a bit of searching, but eventually we connected. Daniel Erickson lives in Melbourne now, 15 hours ahead of the eastern seaboard. I, I, I skated right through the, the dead time. Hardly anyone did it. You were like a pariah. You felt like a pariah. <laughs> Was that how you met um, Howard and the other members of Blue Tile Lounge? Uh, no, I went to school with Howard, but I met Alex through skating. Yeah. To explain how hard it is to coordinate with someone from Australia at my present level, it's been six months since I started this story, and I've only been able to work out getting Dan on the phone. Which is good enough for now, but someday, I hope, there will be a nice, hour-long radio documentary that includes the voices of Howard Healy, Alex Stevens, and Gab Cotton, who, along with Dan, made up the most slowcore band to ever exist. I didn't play guitar until I think we, we were finishing school. So I can sort of remember uh, Howard and I buying guitars and he bought a bass. I knew Alex and I knew I think I knew he was a drummer, you know, because we'd said, oh, do you want to play in a band team? And he said, I've got a friend, Gab, who plays guitar. We sort of wandered around a bit. It wasn't like we met, got together and straight away it was all happening. It didn't have very much direction. <laughs> They met in 1991, but wouldn't record their first album, Lowercase, for four more years. 
mostly. It seems they just played shows and hung around Perth. I know, I don't know. It's it's a nice place, but it's it's quite quiet relatively. I guess if you live in a big city, it's not the weather's really good. <laughs> and but the city was deserted at night. You know, there was nothing much to do. <laughs> there was a few pubs that had shows on, so that was okay. But you know, you sort of indie rock music scene was really really small you know a couple of hundred people basically dan and his friends fell in with a group called jacuzzi international a bunch of alternative rock guys whose best shows were the house parties after the gig could you uh, describe where the name jacuzzi international came from um i think i think the guys that sort of set it up if you can call it set up because it wasn't really um <laughs> just came up with it and yeah and that was one of the things they had a series of house parties which seems really cheesy now but they had a series of parties where they'd have a jacuzzi at the party so it was kind of it was kind of a bit sleazy probably (laughs) perth is the largest city in western australia and the only city by most americans definitions for close to 2,000 miles in any direction australia itself is about the size of the lower 48 states three million square miles give or take a few but while most people merely think that the interior united states is uninhabitable the vast majority of inland Australia is actually dangerous. The outback has a reputation for eating any unprepared motorists alive. Was Perth's isolation ever a drag? Oh yeah, all the time. I mean, you know, the only place you can play shows is in Perth. Every now and then people went on tours to some of the regional towns, but there's hardly anyone in them, and definitely not, and not really anyone into slightly arty rock or anything. So you didn't have much, and at the time it cost quite a lot to get over east like to melbourne or sydney and and we weren't very organized either but um that was that was the biggest problem you just um you had sort of nowhere to go a bit go to any of your local house shows and tell me if you think those bands could survive crossing a desert meaning that and it's rare anyone can legitimately lay claim to this dan and the rest of blue tile lounge might have been the hippest people west of new south wales it's pretty small i mean it was and still is but probably the things that got more prominence in the in the Perth music scene at the time seemed to be more like almost like sort of that really eclectic funk music and stuff like that you know that kind of where the bands do everything all at the same time and we didn't want to play that (laughs) what they did come up with is very very slow music Their first album, Lowercase, exemplifies it perfectly. Five tracks, most of them over nine minutes long, that steep and radiant golden ambience. You know, nothing particularly like a vision. I think it's just sort of almost um, ripping off bits of other things that I liked and putting them together. And it was kind of, um, it's kind of like that story where you hear you know, these really influential bands and sometimes a 30 seconds of a song becomes a whole genre. It was kind of that where you'd find a little passage in a song and say, that's, I want a band, it just sounds like that. Around that same time in America, Alan Sparhawk and Lowe were headed in a similar direction. It wasn't so much that we didn't like what was going on. I mean, I was into, I was into Nirvana. I was into a, a lot of these bands and I didn't, I didn't feel like copying that. We, we knew right away it would probably grate on the audience. And, you know, there was a little bit of there was a little bit of pleasure that come came from that. Even you know, like I, I, I mean, my favorite punk shows were shows where the band came on and everybody in the audience freaked out because it just was not what they were ready for. 
Yeah, I don't know. We didn't call it slowcore because that wasn't. <laughs> we just called them slow songs, I think, <laughs> at the time. Some of it was just being a bit of a shit, you know, and you're going, let's play really, really slow. <laughs> so, if it's only a joke, you can only do it for one show, but there's something pretty magical about presenting something that you believe in so much and you know, like, no, there's something, there's something valid in what we're doing here and not in a like, hey, you listen to me. It's more just like, I know you're not listening, but there's something, there's something going on here. And I know that if just a couple people pick this up, it's going to be totally worth it. You know what I mean? Did you think of yourselves as an indie rock band? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you didn't say I'm indie rock, but you knew you weren't heavy metal. I don't think it wasn't supposed to be ambient music or something like that. It was. It was. We were trying to play songs. Um, we weren't trying to be post rock because um, I didn't know what that meant anyway. <laughs> I don't know, you get an idea in your head and you play it and you try to um, get a style and you work on it and then it's sort of almost natural. But it was, it, you know, I can't, can't pretend that it wasn't contrived. You were thinking about it all the time. In 1993, just as Lowe were releasing I Could Live in Hope, Blue Tile Lounge finally put down a few demos. Their drummer, Alex, sent a copy of the tape to Alan Sparhawk. I just can't remember why he did it. I thought he got he got some inclination that he would um, it would be received well, and I don't know where he got. I can't remember. <laughs> so he wrote a letter, and I think he did a little tape. Do you do you happen to still have a copy of it? Oh, jeez. Let me look. Let me look in here. There's one spot where the the CD might be, in which case the letter might be might be there with it, but um. I can't guarantee anything here. Um, Alan was driving a van back then, making deliveries for Sub Pop. The tape has um, disappeared in the intervening 20 years. uh, I'm not sure where it'd be. Um, Yeah, it was just, this is like, hey, we heard your your music, we really like it. Um, Here's here's a recording of our band and uh, listen to it a lot. In the, in the van, kind of the camaraderie of another band who was playing something a little, little more spaced out and and drawn out. You know, I think at first that, that's reaffirming, like, oh, okay, cool. There's, we're not, even though what they were doing was definitely more electric and, and heavy, it seemed like there was this, this, this sort of common respect of certain aesthetic. The fact that they had reached out to us personally sort of was was the icing on the cake. Before he lost it, Alan made a copy and sent it to another sub-pop associate named Jason Reynolds, who owned his own record label in Australia called Summershine. The band had already paid out of pocket to record lowercase at a Masonic Hall in Fremantle, on the south side of the Perth metropolitan area. It was recorded in a large room with lots of natural reverb and a picture of Queen Victoria on the wall. We had the amps set up really far away from each other, um, there was a funny old tonky piano that we used. I don't know why we didn't take photos. I thought we did, but we don't have any left. We sort of took photos, you know, you got all the cables everywhere. It kind of looks cool and rock and roll, which we weren't, but... <laughs> this track, above all, is the one that I love the most. 
When I'm in the depths of a blue period, it's the one that cycles through my head over and over again, feeding that feeling of soft hopelessness. I just, I won't forget listening to that album for the first time and just being so disoriented by it. It, it just hasn't, I feel like it has very little for you to grab onto for an early listen. And, uh, yeah, it's it's really sad. Slow chord does not make me sad. A music like this does not make me sad, I'll say. But, but I think they have that ability. trying to make it sound sad going back on what I sort of contradicting what I said before about just trying to make things we did we wanted to make music that sounded sad <laughs> but I wasn't just blurting it out it was quite reasonably contrived <laughs> to tell you the truth I mean I really like the that kind of music so I just wanted to make we just wanted to make music like that. the weight in the sea exemplifies what I think of lowercase as it's the sound of rock music coming apart, stretched and slowed so that you can see the seams and hear each chord change. Is it easy to keep time when the beats are so far apart? No, not really. Well, not for us. I mean, it might be for really good musicians. to get you know somehow get something released on a you know label from somewhere else and and really wanted to get released by American labels and this is where Blue Tile Lounge becomes the luckiest band in existence I'm not sure if many of you remember 1995 I certainly don't I was four but a dusty bookshelf in my parents basement tells me one thing about that era it was a pretty good time to buy a cassette Tapes have been enjoying a recent boom in popularity amongst the art crowd, similar to the vinyl revival of the last decade. But in Perth in the early 90s, it was pretty much the only way to get your shit out. And if Alan Sparhawk hadn't found the similarities between his band and Blue Tile Lounge so endearing, if he hadn't happened to know a guy from Australia who owned a record label, it's likely that Blue Tile Lounge would have released Lowercase on cassette as well. It probably would never have left Perth, and it might still be undiscovered. can't quite remember, but the smallest run of CDs you could do was 500, which was quite a lot in Perth, you know? And, um, and, and it cost quite a bit to do it. So a lot of these guys that we met, they were doing tapes. And, you know, some of these tapes are some of my favourite favorite recordings, but, you know, they're, they're on tape. 
You see, tapes are really good for bands who need to make a small run and make it fast. They're also a hassle to transfer to MP3. Even now, there isn't an easy way. CDs, with their awful, soul-killing digital technology, have always been easy. When we did it in CD, it was definitely in the knowledge that you almost couldn't do vinyl from memory. I mean, in Perth, I think. And in Australia, there was pressing was really bad quality. You could still buy records, but I, I think in Perth, you just couldn't make them. Summershine released Lowercase sometime in late 1995, around 20 years ago from the date I recorded this narration. Uh, I think our friends liked it, or they were nice. Um, we got a really funny review in the local press <laughs> where, I don't know, some guy reviewed who didn't know, you know, didn't have any familiarity with the music, which was often what had happened, what had happened in the Perth local press was, you know, people would go and review bands and they had no sort of knowledge of the context or anything. So anyway, we got compared to Pink Floyd, which is pretty weird. And then a bit later, we did the um, Somersault. Somersault was a traveling festival that came to the Fremantle Oval for one day only in January of 96. You've got your, all your touring acts, and then whatever city they go into, they pick some local acts to go and go and play. And I think they picked their local acts, and we weren't one of them. <laughs> and, then, um, and then we got a call from the promoter and I think I remember, I might not be right, that he seemed a bit annoyed because, you know, he'd, he'd been almost directed to put us on the bill. <laughs> so it was pretty big, you know, thousands of people. So that, I think that was our biggest gig by far. And we played two songs because <laughs> they were too long. <laughs> I was always nervous playing, so I was sort of always looking down at my feet. <laughs> I have to sort of make an effort to look, at, look up at the crowd, so I... I sort of forced myself a couple of times, but otherwise I was looking down at my guitar pedals and, and, and facing backwards all the time. You know, once I, once I got my singing over with, I'd turn around. <laughs> so, um, and, and, you know, Sonic Youth and, um, and Pavement and someone else, I can't remember, was sort of standing on the side of the stage while we were playing, so it was, it was kind of cool. Bit of a moment. Where do you go from there? Alan Sparhawk. I, I think I vaguely remember maybe just fleetingly meeting one of the one of one of the people from the band somewhere at a at a gig. But there might have been just wishful thinking in my mind, thinking that surely that must have happened at some point. But uh, what are they doing? I guess this kind of brings us towards the end here, which is uh, yeah. how did Blue Tile Lounge finish? Um, sort of petered away like the end of a song <laughs> from memory. Uh, so. The release of Lowercase brought on a little press from Australia. But again, Perth is isolated, and without a major label to fund you, 
you weren't going anywhere fast. And in all honesty, times were changing. I sort of seem to remember the late 90s and maybe early 2000s as being really terrible for playing guitar-based rock music live. <laughs> I guess one of the things is when we started, the that that kind of music and that scene was kind of a bit of a... It was kind of like an art scene. You know, you had a lot of art students and it was, I guess it was cool or something. <laughs> Whereas a few years later, it seemed like um, like it wasn't, you know, no one else was going. So you so say the crowds really thinned out. Dance music exploded and took with it Perth's rock music scene. I remember being a bit resentful about it. But <laughs> not particularly, just not, I just couldn't see the... You know, just didn't want to... I wanted to see live music. They were, however, able to make a second record. One that I didn't even really know existed until about a year ago. It's called Half Cut, and it was their first and only full release on an American label. We did Half Cut, and Gab uh, went to London almost straight after recording. And, yeah, I don't know. I think I was sort of struggling with writer's block at the time sort of a bit hard to imagine what was going to happen I guess um yeah I don't know (laughs) things have their life I guess (laughs) I should note that Dan seems pretty happy and nostalgic about all of this now it's just very hard to make anything sound chipper over top of Blue Tile Lounge when I listen to Lowercase it's easy to understand why it didn't blow up in the 90s But it's harder still to figure out why they've remained the only window into a time and place that's completely untraceable. Even until recently, it was only possible to find lowercase by downloading some very suspicious-looking zip files. And this was how it came to rest in my hands, during my second blue period in the winter of 2012. I had just started playing guitar and writing songs, and after debuting my first one in front of Tyler, he said, I have a band I think you should listen to. It's like if you were to make a band like that, you'd be uh, uh, chiming into like a very, uh, you know, quiet conversation. And since then, Lowercase has meant something very personal. My only connection to a group of kindred spirits who felt the same need for sad music. A lot of people would appreciate it that, that uh, you know, they want more of it. You know, we have a hunger. We want more stuff like that. We'll stay hungry. Blue Tile Lounge have been talking about a reissue for Lowercase, but they haven't made any plans. Until then, you can find Lowercase on Spotify, or out there, in the ether. Our show was produced today by myself and approved by Kane Dolls. Our website is investigatingregionalscenes.org, where you can find this and soon other stories about music. If you haven't already, please follow us on your local podcast provider. At our website, you can also find the list of songs that we used in this episode. Realize appears courtesy of Codeine and Sub Pop, while the songs Words, Lazy and Stay appear courtesy of Low. 
We'll also have a list of all the bands that Tyler and I mentioned. Thank you to Alan for his contributions on the creation of Slowcore. We'll have a new album out on Sub Pop called Ones and Sixes. My friend Nina says it's really good. Thank you to Tyler Termina. For more on him, stick around for episode six. And thank you to Michaela for her patience. I'm Brendan Maddox. My voice has been claimed by a throat infection, but I'll be back next week with another story about music. this band called um love claire and uh that's like a super gem of the internet for sure there's almost nothing found about them and i challenge a listener right now to, to, to look them up I, I don't know where you'd find anything but email brendan he'll send you the songs <laughs> oh it's just great it's fantastic music next week on stories about music i think it's very important to know the danger of playing with identities you can really easily like lose yourself. And I did that during the release of Badlands and the construction of that character. He, he talked about the mirror. When you go to a different place, there's sort of this mirror that reflects things on you and you have to be willing to see them. So I think we've both experienced that. I, I felt that when I moved to the US. The life of Alex Jiang Hong Tai and the end of his band, Dirty Beaches. Mm-hmm.